Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. The February 2022 issue of Health Affairs focuses entirely on racism and health. It includes papers that trace the long history of racism through to present-day policies and practices that are the reasons for large and sustained health disparities. Now, racism and bias come in many forms, and given the social stigma associated with them, they can be difficult to study. So when a study comes along that provides new empirical data on bias, it makes a major contribution to our understanding of this important topic. One such study in the February issue is the focus of today's health policy. The study we'll discuss today looks at bias in how patients are characterized by clinicians. History and physical notes are entered into a patient's electronic health record when a patient is admitted to the emergency department as an inpatient or as an outpatient. The notes document the patient's reason for seeking medical care. They summarize the patient's medical, family, and social history, and they can describe the plan to address the patient's medical problems. But what if the way the patient is characterized in these notes is distorted by clinician bias? That's exactly what the research found. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Sun, a third-year medical student at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. Sun and colleagues published a paper in the February 2022 issue of Health Affairs examining racial bias in electronic health records and found that Black patients had over 2.5 times the odds of having negative descriptors in their medical records when compared to white patients. Mr. Sun, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. This is such an interesting study, and I want to spend a little time going over the findings before we take on some other topics. So let's review the study and its findings. Just frame the major concepts in the research. You looked at the endpoints of negative patient descriptors. What what are those? How did you define them? Where were you looking for them? So negative patient descriptors are our everyday language, um, quite normal language that uh, you might find in the medical record, um, but characterize a patient with in a negative way. So um, these are words such as non-adherent or aggressive, angry, uh, non-compliant, or uh, also defensive. Um, and and the full list can be found in, in our paper. Um, you know, we pick these words because we knew that physicians were using them um, in uh, literature. So uh, we did a study of, uh, or we did a review of published studies or other editorial writings by physicians. And we picked out these adjectives or these adverbs about, um, you know, how they're describing patients. And uh, we brought them also to an expert panel for um, some additional refinement. And then we went into the charts themselves, looked at, you know, how often we were seeing them, you know, whether we were seeing them at all. And we actually did have to, you know, edit some of these down, remove a couple words that, you know, weren't actually found in the charts. Again, taking it to that history and physical note. Um, you know, this is really important, the, the history and physical note part because when you're admitted into the hospital, you know, this is your first uh, full picture, full summary um, look at and description of, you know, how the patient is doing, 
what their history is, why they're coming to the hospital. Um, and it's the note that a lot of people refer to. So that's you know the rest of the medical team, um, the nurses, the physical therapists, anyone else who might be involved in that patient's care. And you know, quite often, you know, if a patient is coming in for hospitalization and we are able to look back in their medical record, we will refer to the history and physical note of the previous hospitalization. So this is really um, almost the cornerstone of a lot of their medical care and their their narrative um, throughout their uh, stay in the hospital. I have to say, I've always found the term non-compliant particularly offensive, as if somehow it's the patient's job to comply with the advice of the uh, physician, but that's just a personal gripe of mine. Um, But it does seem that certain patients might be more likely to be, forgive the term, non-compliant. Maybe they have more complex health needs or difficulty understanding the guidance. You'd want to control for things like that. So how did you go about controlling for variables that might uh, yield these uh, negative descriptions for reasons that don't reflect bias? So as a whole, we you know looked at uh, what other known biases exist um, that we know about in the healthcare system. So other studies have previously shown, um, and this is whether looking at different health outcomes or treatments, um, you know, looking at the role of a patient's insurance or um, their their uh, gender identity or um, you know their age, and sort of making sure that we knew to the best of our ability that we're accounting for everything that we already know. Uh, but then backing it up to, you know, what other factors, as you're mentioning, might be going into something like this. So uh, we wanted to characterize uh, the environment, so the setting of the encounter. Uh, we even added the COVID-19 pandemic because of the different, um, you know, ways in which healthcare practice may have changed uh, during um you know, what we'll call, you know, the before times and, um, you know, the reality that we have known since. Um, so those were really important because we wanted a nice, uh, you know, very clean look at the effect of race and ethnicity, of the patient's race and ethnicity, um, and the role of these negative descriptors. I also want to just uh, briefly touch back on, you know, we were using the example of non-compliant, but um, you know our study wasn't you know primary. Uh, it wasn't a primary outcome to look at whether patients were non-compliant or not specifically, but rather you know how often are we using this language? Um, you know I would be very comfortable betting that you know most patients are quote unquote non-compliant with their medication at least some of the time, um, but you know that doesn't always get documented. So really we're looking at how often or with what. Um, relative frequency were our patients or were different groups of patients being described uh, in any sort of negative manner. Um, yeah. You know, that's a really important point because, of course, I've I've read the paper multiple times, but, you know, I tend to think of this as a description of the person's behavior. But what you're really getting at is it's a characterization of the behavior. So uh, two people may come in and speak in the same tone of voice, but one of them will be called angry and the other will be called uh, opinion, you know, I don't know, excited or or uh, has a strong opinion or something that maybe isn't so negative. And so this isn't sort of an objective, is the person taking the medication, adhering to the treatment plan? It's how does the clinician perceive the person's behavior and how do, how do they write it down when, when they see it? Precisely. 
you know, the way that I um, sort of liken it is, you know, these versions of truth, you know, it might be true to the person documenting it, that this is what happened in the visit. But it is also true that there is additional context behind any one descriptor. So, you know, to your point about angry, you know, what if uh, there is a situation in which um, the patient was refused care previously? Or what if there's a situation in which, um, you know, the patient's family wasn't allowed to visit as is so often with our COVID protocols these days. And that will make a patient upset. And, you know, whether we afford that patient that additional context is a first of all a choice per provider you know it's, there's no requirement saying you must give the patient's full story um, but it also you know will then influence how everyone else interprets so you know think about how much more empathetic you know someone might be if they had that additional story of this patient you know was not allowed to see their family and so you know became very upset that is totally different from just saying this patient was angry so what you're getting at is that these are shorthands and shorthands are a an easy place to to hide bias. Uh, so your study relied upon machine learning. Now, I don't want a graduate seminar on machine learning, but uh, since it really is central to the study, can you just explain to me uh, lightly what that is and how it fits into your work? So machine learning is really just a tool, um, and it's a tool to analyze language in this case. And, um, you know, we humans, we're actually all very good at analyzing language. Um, so some of the basic requirements for this program were to say, first of all, let's find the word. And, you know, that's, you know, a simple, you know, control F kind of thing um, where we can just find the instances of this word. Uh, but then is it being used in the right context? So um, things like was this a uh, was it sort of looking at uh, this is a resistant bacteria or this is a multi-drug resistant bacteria versus this patient was resistant to conversations about treatment? Those are two totally different contexts. And so uh, we used a manual. We we manually labeled a lot of sentences. So we took uh, you know a few thousand uh, different chart notes um, and sort of taught the program. This is what these words look like. First of all, this is where you can find them. And then second of all, this is what it means when it's used negatively versus not. And this machine uh, learning algorithm was then able to adapt uh, using those uh, using this uh, manually inputted sample and then apply it to tens and thousands of notes. So while it does have its own error rate, it does exactly you know what we tell it to. And um, you know, it's not something that is uh, some, I mean, yes, it is very technical, but at the same time, it's something that, you know, all of us are doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so it's just a matter of trying to scale that work. Um, so we're not manually reviewing tens of thousands of charts. Makes sense to me. Okay, so let's uh, jump to the findings. You report a 2.54 ratio of negative descriptors when you compare black and white patients. Um, just go over those findings with me. And then you earlier said something about how important these notes are. But for those of us who aren't in clinical practice, I think maybe a, another few words on what this represents if you're a patient and this is in the notes and you may never see them or not be aware they're there, why that ends up being important. Absolutely. So um, as far as the results, so the 2.54 uh, times adjusted odds. Um, so that means that if you're a black patient in our in, in the studies uh, data set, um, you know, your medical record has a 2.54 chance, a times chance of having one of these negative descriptors um, compared to a white patient. And this is all things equal. So that means you have the same insurance, you're the same gender, you're the same age. All those things being equal, you still have a 2.54 times uh, greater, you know, odds of having one of these descriptors, um, and that's that. That is quite considerable. And again, you know, we have additional uh, findings. So, um, you know, 
having Medicare or Medicaid uh, has an, an increased odds of having a negative descriptor compared to employer-based or private insurance. Um, and those, uh, like, as I've mentioned, you know, can be found in the paper. Um, but this is really important because you know, as I mentioned, the H&P note is sort of that cornerstone, sorry, the history and physical note is that cornerstone of patient care. Um, and it tells your full narrative. And I, I've sort of uh, talked about a little bit from the patient perspective as far as what happens. But, um, you know, let's consider the role of a consulting physician. So, you know, you're admitted into the general service, um, you have your primary medical team, but um, there's an issue, let's say with, um, you know, your bones, uh, you know, there's a there's a fracture. So they call the orthopedic surgeons, the orthopedic surgeons come by, before they come by, though, they read this note and they read this note and it says, oh, you know, this patient was agitated. This patient was, you know, whichever collection of negative descriptors you want to choose. And that leaves an impression that may influence, you know, how much time the orthopedic surgeons, you know, spend with you, or that may influence the demeanor in which they speak with you. And then that also may, you know, somewhat maybe frighteningly may impact um, the way that they decide to treat you. Um, you know, a study that we cited um, by uh, Anna Gadu um, and uh, colleagues um, looked at these hypothetical chart notes and surveyed physicians about, you know, how likely they were to, or, or sort of what types of uh, pain treatment plans they would give based off of different uh, notes. And the ones, the notes that use more stigmatizing language, um, you know, physicians were actually less likely to prescribe an aggressive pain treatment plan. Uh, for that patient with a stigmatizing note. And so, you know, we wonder whether that would happen in this case too with these other negative descriptors. Now, our paper doesn't get into different health outcomes with these negative descriptors, but I think it's an important consideration um, and future, certainly a, a good future area of study um, to know, you know, what types of, uh, what, what are the differences in care that we might be providing based off of our different documentation? Well, these are really powerful findings. I want to put them in a little bit more context. Uh, we'll do that after we take a short break. Health Affairs Pathways is a new podcast series exploring the various avenues and alleyways of the healthcare system through a variety of storytelling. Unique series are created by fellows at the Health Affairs Podcast Fellowship Program. Join the fellows on their journey to unearth a new healthcare story on such topics as healthcare consolidation, independent primary care, health equity, and more. Our first season is a six-part series from Lolita Abianker. Her series, titled Piecemeal, examines how consolidation in healthcare is affecting independent primary care. Subscribe wherever you listen. And we're back. I'm speaking with Michael Sun about a paper that shows much higher rates of negative patient descriptors for black patients relative to white patients. Before the break, we went over the findings. I want to put this a little bit more into context now. So you're a third year medical student. Let's just talk a little bit about how the study even came to be. How does it fit within what you're doing as a student? I first got the idea for the study in my first year of medical school. Um, we had a required healthcare disparities course. Um, it was actually a lot of the reason why I chose to come to my particular medical school. And we had this lecture um, by Dr. Monica Villa, and she was describing, you know, this patient encounter um, with a with a patient that she has had for a long time. Um, and she sent this patient for a specialty follow up, and this colleague. Um, later got back to her and said, you know, this patient didn't really seem to understand. They weren't very engaged in the encounter. You know, it just seemed, uh, you know, that they didn't really, you know, care about, you know, whatever was going on. And she thought that this was really strange because she always knew this patient to be very engaged and very, um, you know, a, a true partner in their medical care. 
And, you know, as I mentioned about the different truths, there were two truths happening. So one truth is that this physician did indeed have a somewhat, you know, awkward or uncomfortable encounter with this patient. Uh, but then the other truth is that, um, you know, this patient actually has poor medical literacy and had difficulty understanding English and reading instructions in English and participating in that way. And, you know, I, I wanted, I re it really struck me, right? Because, you know, Again, there are two truths happening. And, you know, in one way, we could have chalked this up patient up to being, you know, quote unquote non-compliant, as we've, you know, mentioned a couple of times in this uh, conversation already, or the true context of, you know, this patient, um, English is not their first language, and we need to provide better care, more intentional care because of that. And I think, you know, back to your comment about the different shorthands that, you know, these descriptors, um, you know, are sort of that these descriptors are shorthands is that, you know, how much more useful is it if we say this patient doesn't speak English, needs a translator, you know, how much more useful is that for this patient's future medical care than to say this patient was non-compliant or did not understand or was not motivated. Um, and so, you know, this was happening during my first year. I was blown away by this possibility. So I got in touch with Dr. Monica Peake and Dr. Elizabeth Tung, as well as Tomasz Oliwa at the CRI, um, or Center for Research Informatics here at the University of Chicago. Um, and together, you know, with their, uh, with a, a true team effort to, to make, to pull this study off while I was still um, in medical school. That's a great story. And uh, is there an expectation out of the, the uh, program around uh, bias and disparities that there will be a research project or this just sort of came to you? Yes and no. Um, you know, so this sort of came to me. I think that there is quite a strong, um, I think, institutional motivation by a number of faculty and certainly many of my peers um, to do this sort of research and to do similar work. Um, we also have uh, quite nicely some dedicated time to work on research. So I wasn't, you know, completely left to my own devices in that way and had a, a good amount of support for which I'm very grateful. So after the article was published, uh, you tweeted, this is what happens when you let poets, writers <laughs> try to become doctors. I love that. So, so um, I am struck by this uh, comment, and I wonder if you could talk about your own views about the link between your poetry, some of which I had the opportunity to read online, uh, and uh, your writing and your research. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know... Um... People would really read that tweet. Um, but, uh, you know, thank you for, I guess, uh, following uh, my Twitter page. Um, yeah, so as far as uh, a link, you know, I think that I mentioned about this analysis of language and this attention to language. Um, we all do it, but I think that, you know, my particular background has prepared me to um, question even what you know, other people might not think is unusual. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, this used to be our professional language on a day-to-day -day basis. And yet I was, it, it struck me as odd and, you know, maybe it didn't strike other people, wouldn't strike other people as odd. But um, to me, I very quickly thought, you know, what do they really mean by that? Uh, what else, what other story, what other context are we missing here? Um, and so I think, you know, in one way, in a formal way that has certainly influenced it. You know, I was a first year medical student at the time. So I had not even entered the hospital really um, at this point of, you know, this, uh, the, the seed of my uh, project. And I think also that had a major role as far as pursuing this project. As I mentioned, you know, their language norms that these were just part of our, our normal language in the, in the um, healthcare world. As someone who was new to it, or at least not quite in the healthcare, um, not, not a healthcare provider yet, 
uh, I had, you know, the maybe naivety or at least, um, you know, the untrained eye to say, you know, why are we saying it this way? Why, why don't we do things differently? Um, and I think there's a huge advantage to being, you know, new to so much um, in medical practice that we can start pointing out patterns or things that, you know, strike us as odd, strike us as, you know, where are our norms harmful? Where might our norms be hiding bias? That's a really outstanding point. One study never changes the world, but it adds to a body of knowledge. And it, uh, in this instance, I think you you struck a nerve uh, among people who've observed this sort of behavior, but didn't quite know how we could quantify it or fully understand it. So what do you hope comes from this? What's the next question to answer? What's the next change in practice? Sort of where where does this take you? If I may tell a brief story, um, so as I mentioned, I'm a medical student, and this past year was actually my first year in the clinical space um, working in the hospital. Um, and I remember after a particular patient encounter, I sat down to write my note. I was typing it up, and you know, one of the first sentences which they asked, you know, just describe how the encounter was in general. And the first word that popped up in my mind was actually difficult. Um, you know, it was a difficult encounter. Um, you know, it certainly wasn't, you know, all smiles and, you know, congratulations or whatnot. You know, this patient was sick. And, you know, for many reasons, um, I thought to use the word difficult. Um, it shocked me. I was really frustrated at myself. I was surprised. I was worried that everything that I had just done, you know, the years of research that went into this paper, um, you know, and, and, and here I was using the, that same language. Um, the difference, of course, being that I didn't actually use that word. And I realized if I were to take stock and if I were to afford myself a little bit more time to think about, you know, why I wanted to use this word, um, I could detail the many other factors. You know, we're in a pandemic and this patient wasn't didn't have family to visit, that they um, were extremely uncomfortable, in fact, in a severe amount of pain. And, you know, here they are in the hospital where they feel like, you know, no one's really paying attention to them and they didn't feel like things were communicated clearly. Um, and, you know, those are all opportunities for intervention. Those are understandable things that we can address. So I think that, you know, people hearing this, I, I hope that they have a moment like I did, that we go to, you know, we might think this one word to describe a patient, that shortcut. But if you were to afford this patient 10 more words, 20 more words, at least a small, at least, you know, an additional sentence of saying, you know, what other context is going on, that we might be able to afford a little bit more compassionate and empathetic care. So that's that's takeaway number one. Takeaway number two, I do want some bigger changes. I would love for our education um, of note writing to be different. Um, so other medical students, I hope that, you know, if we're able to build good practices before we enter the hospital, even people who are using this language more frequently, um, biased or not, um, you know, won't be able to as uh, uh, strongly influence, you know, the good practices that we set up first. And then lastly, I hope that other stakeholders, you know, whether uh, hospital leadership, academic leadership, or other policymakers, um, really see this as a, first of all, quantitative proof that bias is a real issue and in our healthcare systems, and that we need to take multiple um, interventions at different levels to make real change. So, you know, we discussed in our paper things like bias uh, training and additional education as far as, you know, our, our language to discover patients, you know, those of course are, are very important. And, um, you know, unfortunately though, you know, almost a, a symptom level, uh, you know, intervention. Um, and we really need to you know continue to address the underlying factors in our society that cause, um, bias to emerge. And, um, 
you know, another thing that we touch on in a paper is the, the circumstances that, you know, prompt bias to occur. Um, there's been work done that, you know, increased stress, burnout, et cetera, um, you know, prompts resident physicians to use more shortcuts, mental shortcuts, otherwise known as stereotypes. So, you know, if we are not addressing, you know, all of the issues that are really plaguing our healthcare system with with vigor and with uh, as with the seriousness that it deserves, we'll not be rid of, you know, the bias that we're seeing in our notes. Uh, those are all really interesting ideas. And as we uh, bring our conversation to a close, I just am curious that this uh, the inspiration for this came in your first year, as you mentioned a little while ago. You've had uh, some time and experience since then. If you had the time and the inclination to do a follow-up, uh, what what would be next on in terms of research uh, for you? I think uh, we we touch on this in our limitations a little bit, um, and I think first and foremost, broader populations. Um, you know, we did this at a single um, academic center. Uh, can we see this these results in other academic centers with different patient populations? Um, and with that, we hope to have expanded information on variables. So, um, especially as this was my first research project, I didn't really. Um, see uh, what was possible or impossible as far as our data collection. You know, we used electronic health record data and what is present in that data um, is actually not always the best. So for example, we were uh, very limited and, and had to use um, patient sex, um, not gender, not gender identity, um, but patient sex, because that's how, that's what we record. That's the question that we ask. So, you know, how can we expand to include and be more inclusive of different patient identities? Um, you know, a personal loss to me as someone who's Asian American, we weren't able to characterize, um, you know, Asian American as its own race and ethnicity group, and instead were resorted so often as many research studies are to other to characterize many, many different race and ethnicities. Um, so that's the, that's all part of it as well. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we'd be really interested in, in, in looking at outcomes. So are there different mel- uh, health or medical outcomes of patients that, um, you know, are impacted by negative descriptors? Um, and then lastly, you know, it's a question that's actually come up quite a bit is, you know, oh, which negative descriptors or, you know, who's being described how? Um, and that's uh, something else that we'd like to, you know, refine in our algorithm, be able to really pull out um, which negative descriptors are being used the most. Well, I hope the... Uh robust findings you have here create a pathway for you and others to answer some of those questions. Because as you note, there are limitations, but there are limitations that can be overcome with uh, larger data sets and additional analysis. And I I look forward to seeing the results of some of those. Uh, Mr. Sun, thank you so much for your work on the paper, uh, for this interesting conversation. I wish you all the best in your studies, and thank you for being my guest on Health Policy. Well, thank you, Alan. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.